Let's pray together. Father, give us the grace that uh, our stony hearts would be plowed and that uh, the seeds of your word would be planted that we might see, that we might behold, that we might enjoy Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's good to be back. Very thankful for Daniel breaking the word. I know he did an excellent job. I feel exceptionally blessed to be in a place where a lot of people can teach and preach really well. And that is a blessing for all of us. Let me ask you a question. Would you consider your life happy? Would you consider and characterize your life as one of joy? And, uh, and if not, what do you think you need to be happy? In other words, if you were to answer the question, I would be happier if I had blank, what would that be? And do you really think that would make you happy? Now, I, I quickly and I gladly admit that we all want to be happy. I mean, whether it's a Christian thinker like C.S. Lewis or a non-Christian thinker like Sigmund Freud, both agreed, yes, we want to be happy. We pursue things to be happy. Blaise Pascal, that 17th century French, um, well, both scientist but turned philosopher and theologian, wrote these words. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever means they employ, they all tend toward this end. The cause of some going to war, of others avoiding it, is the same. Desire in both. Attend it with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. People want to be happy. Does that seem selfish to you? And would it surprise you if I told you that the Bible actually encourages us to be happy and even gives us a path to find that happiness? Would it further surprise you that God commands you to be happy? It's interesting, Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in New England in the 18th century, wrote a book called Religious Affections. Many of you have read it, perhaps. It's a book about cultivating happiness, great, high, lofty affections for God. It's the purpose of the book. Here's what he wrote in one sermon, in a sermon entitled, Nothing on Earth Can Represent the Glories of Heaven. Here's what he said. He said, God created man for nothing else but happiness. He created him only that he might communicate happiness to him. Does that surprise you? Or Jeremy Taylor, a 17th century British Anglican, he said it in more stark terms. He said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Isn't that amazing? 28 times in the book of Psalms, God commands us to be happy. 28 times. Psalm 1, the, the psalm that we'll be studying today, is really the doorkeeper of the psalm. It's not the doorkeeper because it's the first of 150, but it's the doorkeeper because it's kind of like the preface to all the psalms. In other words, it's a psalm of wisdom instructing us how we can live very happy, satisfied, fulfilled lives. Really, all of the psalms do that in some measure. Psalm 1 sets the table. So if you consider this a true biblical call to be happy, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 1. Let's read the psalm together. It's a sweet psalm. It's chock full of great wisdom. Psalm 1, verse 1. Psalm's in the middle of your Bible. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the psalmist is promising us happiness if we follow this psalm. The psalmist begins right away, blessed, or you could translate that word happy. Happy is the man. In other words, the psalmist sees that happiness and and this joy is to be attained by us. It's not some idea that you hope to achieve one day. It's actually attainable. And he shows us the path here. Interestingly, though, he begins in the negative. Do you notice that? Blessed is a man who does not walk. Why? Why would he begin in the negative? Well, I think, number one, we all start there. That, That the inclination of the heart of man, natural heart of man, is to not find delight in the law of God, but to find it restrictive and find it burdensome. But the psalmist knows better, and the psalmist knows that true happiness cannot be gained from the counsel of the world, the wisdom of the world. And so that's why he says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, the advice of the wicked. The, 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 and when we say wicked, you see two lives being patterned here, one after the world, you're going to see one pattern after God, the wisdom of the world, the advice of the world, the values of the world. That, that, that happiness will not be gained as you walk in that, as you have a diet of this wisdom from the world. In fact, you see, kind of in that, in that descending spiral, if you will, that we're walking in the advice of the world, and then it moves to standing in the way of sinners. Standing in the way of sinners is not, I am standing, hindering the sinner from going forward. Standing in the way of sinners is more of an expression for standing in their shoes adopting their lifestyles, their habits, their beliefs. So you see this, it's walking in the way of the wicked, and then you you stop just listening, and now you're embracing and living. Those who diet themselves on the wisdom of this world, they draw their values, their views, they begin to then live them out, but it doesn't stop there either. Happiness won't be gained there, and it won't stop there. It moves to sitting in the seat of scoffers. In other words, you actually become the cynic. You actually become the despairing. You actually become the scoffer. That's where it moves. It's a downward spiral. It's a progressive thing, incremental in nature. Unhappiness in life is not at a moment. It's occurring over time. And that's what the psalmist is warning. He's calling us to avoid this road of ruin. If you want to be happy, then don't seek your wisdom from the world. Don't don't listen to it so that it becomes part of you so that you become that which you originally <clears throat> didn't want to be. So, so let's ask yourselves, the first step in terms of finding happiness, that this delighting in the word is going to lead to a life of happiness, you have to avoid this road. So to whom do you turn for happiness and for wisdom in being happy? Who do you listen to? If you say to me, well, I really make my own decisions, do you really believe that? You have hundreds of thousands of influences that press on your soul all the time. Throughout your life, you're being impressed. Maybe a voice is out of Hollywood. I think about the kids and 
music. I think about you get older, you listen to the pundits in Washington give commentary on social and political issues. Who do you listen to? When you want to discern how you live in terms of what does it mean to have and use money, what is your understanding of sexuality? What is your understanding of beauty? What is your understanding of success? How do you understand work? I mean, what, what filters into your mind so that you understand what those things are? I mean, the, the world's always offered its wisdom. It's always made great promises. You know, so I was born in 61, and so at least the early years were lived in this great moral revolution. And I, I mean great not in terms of its value, but in times of but in terms of the change, 60s and 70s, I mean, everything was changing. This idea of if we can just be free from the Judeo-Christian ethic, we will be happy. If we can just get rid of God and his laws, we'll be happy. And so ideas like changing your spouse to be happy, that's a good thing. If it makes you happy, do it. Or, Or thinness. Thinness became really big. Thinness was big. Consensual sex. That's great. It's free. We're free of the laws. We'll be happy now. I want to ask you, anybody over 30, do you really believe it? I mean, is life so superficial that that's going to make you happy? And yet thousands buy into it. I mean, I think we almost need to repent of this lust for practical, utilitarian, self-serving purposes. That's the wisdom of the world. It's going to be there tomorrow for you. And there'll be thousands of voices speaking into your life. The psalmist says, this will not lead you to happiness. They'll promise you happiness, but it won't take you there. Incrementally, you'll go downward. But in contrast, happiness is the possession of the one who delights in the law of God. Now, don't think of law of God simply as these legal ordinances, like we're going to turn to Leviticus and find some really happy things to read. That's not what we're speaking about. The word for law is Torah, and Torah means instruction. It's the instruction of God. Those who are happy are delighting in the instruction of God. Think about it. God has instructed us as to his character. God has instructed us as to his his loving and saving acts. God has instructed us that he has created a people for himself, and he's given us encouragement to live in ways that are healthy and happy that we are to delight ourselves in the instruction of God. And, and we're to delight and meditate or parallel, to meditate. We're to meditate on these things. This is what leads to happiness. When I say meditate, the word really means to mutter or to groan. It, it, it's like if you can imagine when you're caught up in some deep thought, you almost are repeating or you're saying to yourself the things that you're thinking. This idea of meditating on the word isn't simply memorizing or reading scripture, but I mean you're meditating, you're thinking about it. You're considering it. And what's happening is that word also has the meaning of kind of plotting life ahead. So as you meditate on the word, as you meditate on the instruction of scriptures, you're beginning to say, I'm going to base my decisions. I'm going to base my feelings. I'm going to set my goals based upon what I've just read. It's this continual consideration of how God has revealed himself. And and it moves to conduct changing. So I just read this. Okay, I'm going to begin changing my life in light of what I've just read. This meditating day and night isn't some continual, it's not trying to keep you 24 hours a day going. It's speaking about the, about the totality of meditating. That it's not for a Sunday morning, it's for every day. You're meditating, you're considering, you're thinking. 
Now, what's interesting here is when he compares in verses 1 and 2, you see the contrast there. He doesn't ask you, he doesn't contrast the influence of the world and the ungodly, and you should soak yourself in the influence of the godly. He's saying, no, the influence of the world is offset by the influence of God and the law of God, the instruction of God. In other words, the world is going to offer you its pleasures, but God has pleasure for you. It's the pleasures of God. We fight this fight of faith to pursue and meditate God because he offers us delight in himself. That's a huge thing. Thomas Chalmers, I've referenced this before. He wrote an article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he's saying that that an increased new love is going to drive out the secondary loves that aren't as worthy as the new love. And so this love for God, this delight in God, is what is to begin to whittle down and cause our loves for this world. Instead of just saying, I'm not going to do that. No, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to delight in God. And that begins to erode the foundation of the love and the delights of the world. Now, how do we? So what I'm saying is, if we want to be happy, if we want to have a life of happiness, we want to avoid the road of worldly wisdom, and we want to pursue the wisdom that God has given to us in his world, meditating on it, thinking about it, and then adjusting our life accordingly. Now, how does a New Testament person read this? You know, we want to be careful here in the New Testament. We don't want to ignore what we have in terms of revelation of the New Testament. At the same time, we don't want to just superimpose the New Testament onto the Old Testament. Now, the reason I ask the question is because Jesus said in Luke 24 that all the prophets and laws and psalms, they all point to him. So the question is, how does this point to Jesus? How do we see Christ? Well, some would say that blessed is the man would be Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment of this psalm, that he is the one who has walked it out perfectly, and we can kind of just hook our wagon to him. Now, I wouldn't say that would be the way that we see Christ here. It isn't a promise fulfillment. It's not fulfilled in the Old Testament. I do think Christ walked this out perfectly. I think he did, you know, not stand in the way of sinners. I think he did delight in the law of God. I think he did prosper. He was like a tree planted by the water. But I don't think that him doing it means we don't. So how does it point to Christ? How, how, How could Jesus have said that? Well, look with me. He says that, but his delight is in the law of God, the law being the Torah, the instruction of God. Now, Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. In other words, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Torah. Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's plan. And so I think the New Testament Christian looks at this, and he says, but his delight is in the law of God. His delight is in the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God, so our delight is in Christ. That when we delight in the law of God, yes, we can gain value still delighting in the Old Testament teaching. But we delight in the Old Testament teaching as it teaches us about Christ. And so now we are increased in happiness as we consider Christ. I think about Christ in the gospel. I I meditate and behold Christ in the forgiveness of sins through his death. I'm, I'm meditating on Christ and him bringing a kingdom that will endure forever, that he is inviting me into. I meditate on Christ and the fact that he uh, lives and rules right now, that death could not hold him. I meditate on Christ, who will never allow me to be separated from the love of God. I meditate on Christ, 
being the full redemption. He's restored and reconciled all things to God. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. We don't need to wait for anything else. All of God's plan rested on the shoulders of Christ. He's the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of all things. He is the one that has done it all for us. So when we meditate on that and we think about Christ, our hearts are gladdened and overjoyed. But you need to meditate. So how do we move to having a life of happiness that is one of meditation? Well, well, let me just give you a few things I'd like us to consider repenting of first. First, let's repent of our attraction to the trivial. We have a love for the superficial. We have a love for the inane. I, I mean, TV has replaced books. Comedy has replaced serious thought. Books about developing our spirituality have replaced the Bible. I mean, we do want to repent of our absolute, we have a lust for entertainment. And it does nothing to cultivate a spirit that wants to meditate on God's word, to meditate on Christ. We need to repent of that. I mean, look through your life. How much time do you spend on that which is just useless? And then secondly, I would also ask you to consider repenting of this deception that if we, if we invest little, we're going to get much. So in other words, many Christians, or at least they'll claim Christian, they don't read their scriptures. And then they wonder why the pull of the world is so strong. I mean, we think, well, I'll just put in a little, I'll just open up the Bible and read a little bit. And we're thinking that there's just going to be acres of, of fruit born from that. I mean, it's deception. I mean, many of us, too, we may read the Bible periodically, but we don't read it with a seriousness to it. In other words, we kind of just live our spiritual lives in terms of the intake of God's word. We look at it more like, well, I got some spiritual sound bites, and I've got this short little cute devotional that I read. And, and this one radio preacher is really good. I catch him for 15 minutes between here and work. I'm not saying those are bad, but it's like popcorn. You don't live on popcorn. It's nice to have. It is. After a good meal, it's really nice to have. But it doesn't sustain you. So what we're trying to do in this Life Together series that we've been going through is we're trying to promote Christ so that you will love him and you will adore him in greater measure. And if your eyes are caught up to the beauty of Christ, then our life together will be glorious. We don't even need to worry about this if we are looking at Christ. And so we talked about beholding Christ on January 1, and and Daniel preached on beholding Christ, humbling ourselves through prayer and fasting. And here I'm speaking about beholding Christ through his word. Our desire is that our life together in this church will be strengthened, and we're saying that that strengthening will come as we behold Christ in his word. Think about Paul when he writes in Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly, as you teach and admonish one another. In other words, the rich dwelling of Christ is what's going to fuel the admonishment and the encouragement one to the other. But it's the word. I think about Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher in London in the 19th century. He said this. He says, banquet your faith on God's own word. And whatever your fears are once, repair to the bank of faith with your father's note of hand, saying, remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast cast me to hope. That Go to God. Now, I'd ask you to consider repenting of one other thing, not just repenting of our attraction to the trivial, not just repenting of our desire or our thought that if I put a little bit in, I'm going to get a lot, but repent of our reading without actually delighting in God. I mean, we may read the Bible, 
but we don't delight in God in our reading. And, and I'd ask you to consider that. Again, Edwards speaks to this about reading for knowledge's sake and not for delight. I'm asking you to read for delight. I'm asking you to read to mind God's word that you would find joy raising up in him. Edwards speak about it, speaks about it this way. It's like honey. You, know, you don't go to honey to determine what it feels like and what it looks like. You go to honey to eat it. Honey is sweet. To just talk about it, to feel it, and to understand its constituent parts isn't what honey's about. The word of God is meant to be sweet to us. In fact, in Psalm 119, David writes, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's what the word's to be. Let me give you one other warning here from C.S. Lewis. So we move from Edwards to Lewis on this. Uh, C.S. Lewis spoke about two kinds of reading. Uh, A reading in which we read something uh, according to the author's purposes, or we read something according to what we want. He talks about receiving something and using something. And here's what he writes. He says, when we receive it, we exert our senses and imagination and various other powers according to a pattern invented by the artist. When we use it, we treat it as an assistant for our own activities. Using is inferior to receiving because art, if used rather than received, merely facilitates, brightens, relieves, or palliates our life, but it does not add to it. So what I'm saying is you go to the Word as if God's written it to you and you're delighting yourself in it. It's changing you. It's transforming you. But you must meditate on it. So we're in Haiti and we're about to go over and teach. And Nick says, uh, we're sitting on this kind of a porch outside the room. And he says, hey, I want you to read your favorite verse to me and I'll read my favorite verse to you. This is what pastors do for a real good time. (laughs) Uh, We're wild. Don't kid yourself. It's a great idea. So he started with Psalm 16. And in verse 2, here's what he read. He says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from thee. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Meditating on it, I'm thinking, I've got a lot of goods. I mean, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my son-in-law. I love this church. I love the leadership. I mean, I love a lot of things. And how often I love them without considering that they have come from my Father. They are like shafts of light that are intending to lead me back to the Son, back to Him. And it convicted me. It moved me to repentance, but it moved me to worship because that's the God that we serve. And so in just reading one verse, it brought me to my knees in repentance and worship. That's the power of the word in changes. When we meditate, when we fly through something without meditation, there isn't the same feeding. So I want to encourage you that a life of happiness comes as you delight, as you meditate, as you eat, as you discover in God's word. But then let me explain to you what this happiness looks like, because it really looks like a life of fullness. Look with me in three and four. Now, remember, happiness in the Bible is much more than fame, popularity, six-figure income, or your health, or your children. Happiness in the Bible is much more of a well-being. It's a shalom, it's a peace, it's a contentment, it's a joy. It's living life the way God intended it to be. 
That's what happiness is. And and you see a picture of this happiness in verse 3 when he says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. In other words, it's it's a tree. Think of a 50-year-old oak. It's massive. It's strong. It weathers storms. It's the picture of stability and firmness and endurance. That is the life of a person who has been delighting in God's word. It's, 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 the, it's a picture of a person who has been soaking themselves in the instruction of God. It's like a massive oak. It's more than that. It's fruitful. It sends its roots out, and it drinks of the water. It yields fruit in its season. It, the tree is not just a conduit from water, for water, like a pipe. It goes from A to B, but it absorbs the water, and it begins to work in the fabric of the tree such that fruit is now hanging off of it. That, that, you're, that as your mind is digging deeply in the word of God, that, that it begins to promote in you and produce in you fruit. Fruit that is enjoyed by those around you. But it's more than just stable and fruitful, but it's also enduring. Notice how he says that its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In other words, as the hot winds of life blow over you, and there's seasons of drought that you remain fruitful, you prosper. And the word for prosper is not so much about about this idea of material prosperity, although it may include that in some cases, but it really refers to a life that has significant impact on others. You are effective in the lives of others. I mean, picture this person. So the happy person, the one that delights in the word of God, is going to have a full life. And you know what these people look like. They're like a tree. I mean, think about those people that you know that soak their minds in Scripture. They're encouraging. Uh, They draw you to spiritual truths. They're nourishing to be with. They sacrifice well. They enjoy, even in times when there is little. They're not subject to to the whims of life. They're just solid people. I mean, when they face uncertainty, they face it with peace. Why? Because they've meditated on the truth that Christ is at the right hand of God. And that nothing can thwart the purposes of God in our lives. Even trials that come in are still used, that God uses them to conform us to Christ. They face guilt and and burden of sin and failure. They face that with confidence that God has provided a son for them and that he has died for their sins. Jesus has borne the wrath. He's carried the sin. He's borne the shame. And now we're free. I mean, they're confident even though they're not perfect. They face trials in life, whether it's money or family or relationships. They face trials with a degree of confidence that God's going to move. If he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see them. They have troubles in life. They're still worshiping. They're still satisfied. You even see them as they face success. They face that with humility because they know the richness of all that they have in Christ. And so a new job or a better car, they're nice. Nothing compared with Christ. They always have a perspective. They face cancer, even death or other trials. They face that with a measure of strength because they've meditated on Christ. Think about Revelation 1 when he says, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. When you meditate on that, cancer just kind of works its way. It just kind of melts before that picture that Christ is alive now. So there will be no death. There will be no separation. 
They face life. But look at verse 4. Because again, the person who's pursued the wisdom of the world, they're like chaff. You know what chaff is? It's that little sheath around a, a kernel. So what happens is you bring the wheat in, the threshing floor is often built on the side of hills where the wind was higher, and they would, of course, press it down with various stuff, and, and it would break it up, and then they'd throw it in the air. And the chaff, or the sheath, which is lighter, would just blow away with a, a light breeze, and the kernel would come back to the ground. That's what chaff is. It's worthless. It's rootless. It has no value. And the person who lives their life according to the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of God is ultimately of little value little significance, little impact. They just blow away. So he's telling you and telling me very clearly, delighting in the word of God leads to happiness. Delighting in the word of God leads to significance. But look one other thing in 5 and 6. Delighting in the word of God also leads to security. Look in 5. He says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the end of the road. Folks, you know, whenever Tom and I are in a discussion about what we should do or not, I always ask him, and I know he gets tired of it, but I think he'll love me one day for it. Uh, I say, are you going to be happy in five years? If you make this decision, in five years will you be satisfied? The use of your money, the choices you're making, in five years will you be happy? Well, the psalmist is asking us to go to the end of the road and look at it and saying, where do you want to be? Because he tells us the end of both categories of people. He says, the wicked will not stand in judgment. The sinners will not be in the congregation of the righteous. In fact, the way of the wicked will perish. It will end badly. It will end despairingly. But notice the way of the righteous, the one who has beheld Christ, the one who sees himself in union with Christ being made righteous before God. What is his way? It says, the Lord knows his way. And the word to know is that Hebrew word talking about the intimacy between a man and a wife in marriage. He knows it. He's infinitely loving to you in the way. He's going to provide for you. He's going to support you. He's going to make sure that your end is where it ought to be. The Lord knows the way. He loves the way of the righteous. This is to bolster up confidence so that as we're delighting in the law of God, we're thinking, he will bring me to where I need to be. And that makes me happy. That gives me security. So really, the the psalmist is just putting out before us two categories of people. We don't like two categories of people. We always want a third. We don't like the black and white, but that's all we have here. Now, to those here who do not delight in the Son of God, you don't delight in the wisdom of God. You've been served well by the world. You draw your practical and utilitarian wisdom out of the world. How happy are you right now And how steadfast is that happiness, do you think? What is it rooted in? And is it not temporal? The warning to you here is to look down the road. I mean, you don't want a chaff-like life that is rootless and insignificant at the end of your day. You don't want to put your head down on your pillow the last week of your life and think, my life amounts to nothing. It's a fearful thing to live without God. I know we have the popular song in the 80s, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I was convinced Bob Marley, and he did write some of the words, and I was thinking you had to be a pot-smoking guy to be able to say that and believe it, to be honest with you, because there's a thousand things to worry about. 
There is a thousand things to worry about. And there's a thousand things that you may be happy today and it won't be tomorrow. To don't worry, be happy is just, it's advice for the foolish. That's all it is. There's a lot to worry about when you're drinking from the wisdom of the world. So I want to encourage you to consider asking God. Just ask God to reveal himself to you, to show you his glory, to shine the light of his face upon, upon your mind. You know, the warning is from Psalm. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the way it ends in death. You don't, you want to be looking down the road. But to those of you here who have a desire to delight in God, who want to be changed by the word, who want to sense a greater degree of happiness rooted in God, ask him. Think about the psalmist David in 119 when he says, open my eyes to see wondrous things in your law. Ask God, even if you have a desire and you're struggling to do it, that desire is good. Just, just fertilize that with, with beginning to plan. Let me give you some example. Hopefully this will give you some freedom. I've always read through the Bible in a year, every year for years. And what I end up doing, to be perfectly honest with you, is I get a little bit behind. I've got four chapters to read today. I cruise through it. And so I forget, forget it this year. I'm not going to live by that rule anymore. I'm going to just read one chapter a day. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to read one chapter, and I'm fundamentally at least focus on the New Testament this year, and I'm going to read it two and three and four times. And I'm just going to take the verses very slowly going over there, turning them into prayer, considering them, mulling them over, and thinking about them. I'm not going to go for quantity. I'm going to go for quality, confessing, praising, however the chapter leads me. Would you join with me this year in delighting in Christ through his word? Would you, would you try again? You may have failed the past 10 years. Just try again with me. One chapter a day, five days a week, you'll cover the whole New Testament in a year. It'll give you a good overview to begin feasting on the Word. Now, let me close with, um, with something I came across just yesterday from George Mueller. You know, he was the gentleman... Um, uh, gentleman in England in the 19th century, that man of great faith and ran many, many orphanages and had a lot of writings, just a, a brilliant man of faith and, and really walked out. But listen to what he writes, because I love it as a pastor. He's just speaking very, very clearly, and um, hopefully his experience will be ours as well. He says, he says, while I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, irrespective of human instrumentality. He just learned it himself from God. He says, as far as I know, the benefit of which I have not lost. He says, for more than 40 years have since passed away. So he's speaking now from experience. He's done this for 40 years. He says, the point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, how I might get my soul, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, and how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world, and yet not being happy in the Lord, and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. 
Before this time, my practice had been at least for 10 years previous as a habitual thing to just give myself to prayer. And after having dressed in the morning, he goes on to talk about how he would pray, 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 and it would be very, very difficult. He goes on, he says, the first thing I did, though, I do, after having asked a few words of the Lord's blessing upon his precious word, was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get a blessing out of it. Not for the sake of public ministry, not for the sake of preaching, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably is this, that after a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation, and yet it turned into more or less prayer. He says, thus, the Lord is pleased to communicate to me that which very soon after I have found to become food for other believers, though it was not for the sake of the public ministry of the word that I gave myself to meditation but for the profit of my inner man. As you seek God in his word to nourish your soul as God's speaking to you, then the ministry flies out of that. But this is the first thing. So would you join with me? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to open it up. We can all pray together. If you pray, uh, please pray responding to the word. It may be confession over your unhappiness. It may be seeking happiness. It may be praying for a greater love for the word. But may we be a people this year would it not be great to, be, to have a church culture that is soaked in the scriptures that our encouragement isn't just, well, this is what I did when I had that problem, but I'd rather give you God's word. It has more authority. It has more truth. It rests on the soul differently. And so let us be a people moving toward that this year. I'll open us in prayer, and then um, my brother, one of the elders, will close us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and the truth in it. We want to be happy. We want to be happy, but we want to be happy in you, Father. We want to be happy in you as you've revealed yourself through the Son. Father, give us eyes to see these wondrous things that you have declared to us. May they fill our soul. May they satisfy us. May they encourage us, Father, that we would be happy people, thus declaring your worth in our eyes. Thank you.